Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the other half. Chat, Ellen Alpsten on the Tsarina's Daughter. In what feels to me a lifetime ago, but is actually only about 12 months... I spoke to Ellen Alpstern on the podcast about her book, Tsarina, a brilliant debut historical novel about Tsarina Catherine I, the wife of Peter the Great, and the first woman to rule Russia. Since then, and I can only assume because of it, the book has gone on to be tremendously successful. It has been shortlisted for the Authors Club Best First Novel Award, got a starred review from Booklist, and has sold so well that it already has a sequel. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of the book, and spoke to Ellen earlier this week to find out all about it. Enjoy! today i'm very well thank you so much for welcoming me back on your podcast of course it's been it's been about a year again since we last spoke for your your first book Sarina. so i guess the first question we should ask is uh, how are you how are you then um slowly getting out of things and you know i feel that the the months or the one and a half years of of lockdown kind of wrap you in cotton wool you almost had this feeling of sensory deprivation and I have to say I'm not necessarily really looking forward to a return to normality I was out and about in London the last two days on a proof tour speaking about um, the Tsarina paperback and uh, the hardback of the Tsarina's daughter which we are going to discuss later to booksellers telling them what it's about signing dozens and dozens and dozens of books and I was utterly exhausted. I think we've just lost the um, the habit of of being social. And um, other than that, of course, just very very busy writing the Serena's daughter last year. I think hand in was the twenty third of December, <laughs> a very timely deadline. Um, yes, and now of course all the PR and marketing effort has started, which is great because I know how many books are out there, and it is such a privilege to have so many people so interested in my work. I feel blessed. Yeah, I think I had two nights out in a row a couple of weeks ago, one of which might have been the England game. So a few <laughs> beverages were drunk. And I like just 
dead for the next like three days. Like all this socializing, it's just, I'm just, it's exhausting. I'm just used to like just being at home. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel the same. <laughs> so obviously for those of you who either don't remember our, um, our last conversation with Ellen or, or missed it. Uh, so last year we spoke about her um, first book, which is Tsarina, which is about the Empress Catherine the first of Russia, not that Catherine, the first one. Um, and this book, uh, well, Ellen, why don't you tell us about what that? Gladly, actually, yeah, not that Catherine, as you say, because my Catherine is actually much, much better. Um, so the book we're speaking about today, uh, The Tsarina's Daughter, is the second book in the planned Tsarina or House of Romanov series, which will be a quartet of novels. And it is essentially about the rise to power of the Empress Elizabeth, who was the only surviving child of her 15 siblings of Peter the Great. So he had three children with his first wife, then another 12 um, with Catherine I or the later Catherine I. And of all these children, only one daughter survived into adulthood. And that was Elizabeth, who was hailed in her youth as the world's loveliest princess. And she absolutely was. There's a portrait of hers painted by Louis Caravac. And if you look at it, I mean, she just is a young Marilyn Monroe, so dewy-eyed and rosy-cheeked and buxom physiques, incredible. And she was gr- born into unimaginable riches. I mean, there were palaces of five, 600 rooms dotted all over the country. Every gem of hers was at least pigeon egg sized. Every pearl was as large as a chickpea. You know, there were servants in abundance, nothing to worry about. She was the envy of Russia. Her father even dreamed of marrying her off to Versailles, to Louis Quinze. That would have been an incredible match, of course, for his ambitions. But then fortunes turn very cruelly for Elizabeth. And suddenly, in very quick succession, both her parents die and masks fall, friends turn foes, and one of the most complex times in the Russian history starts that is actually very rich in complexity and uh, complications. So how she actually travels inwardly, her inner journey from this very spoiled, pampered, beautiful princess to being a savvy and staunch survivor This is what the book is about. And of course, there's also a fantastic, very unlikely love story who in the end helps her to become who she is, to claim what is hers, even though it comes at a terrible price. Ooh, I mean, I've read the book and I want to read it again now. (laughs) It's great. So obviously, all of this uh, hasn't come from your head. This is all the result of a huge amount of research. And obviously you had to do an awful lot of this research whilst probably not being able to visit all the places where you'd want to go. So how did you go about um, researching all the stuff for this book? You're right. I sent a couple of emails to the fantastic School of Slavonic Studies here in London with questions, but they said, you know, at the moment, we really can't help you. We're so sorry. The good thing with research is once you've done it, and I did a year of research before I started writing Zarina, that first sentence, of course, these are certain economies of scale. Once you've done them, you have them. And the background between Zarina and the Zarina's daughter was not that vastly different. Russia was more westernized, but lots of reforms of Peter the Great had only started and hadn't been implemented or finished yet. Far from it, actually. Um, So what was the most important thing was actually to get close to that very 
complex figure that Elizabeth is, because Elizabeth, in a way, or Lizenka, as she's called in the book, because this is her Russian pet name, the Russians are big on pet names, is a figure who's as complex and as contrary as the beautiful Slavic soul and capturing all these opposites that she so casually combines in herself. That I found the hardest thing. And the best books I found about her, actually books that are out of print. And one was even published, I think, 100 years ago, if not 120 years ago, uh, just called The Daughter of Peter the Great. There is very little about her. It is fascinating how lucky I was once more to chance upon her. And once more, like Tsarina, the Tsarina's daughter, is actually in Western literature the first proper novel about the Empress Elizabeth and her rise to power. So we... we obviously talk about research. How much, so how much of the book is sort of quote-unquote fact and how much of it is uh, quote-unquote fiction? I compare my work on the Tsarina or House of Romanov series almost to ice dance. You know, you have one show that is duty and one show that is free dance. The duty for me is the historical setting. It's almost like weaving a tapestry of a thousand threads, a million threads, which is large enough to cover one of the magnificent walls in the Winter Palace. And then, so all the setting has to be right, the way they speak, what they eat, what they wear, how they travel, how they live, um, where they were, at what time. Everything is 100% correct in, in my books. And then the fiction is, of course, you ask yourself the question, how was it really like? What was it really like? And that's, of course, the human factor comes in, the thoughts, the emotions. So there, as a novelist, you have to be able to feel yourself into your character. And that's perhaps why I instinctively chose, again, the first person. It's, again, a first-person narrative, as Serena as well. Because like that, of course, as a writer, you feel much closer to your character. So the only element that is truly fiction is a very supernatural element that I've introduced into this novel that you do not find in Serena. And upon my research, I found out that the palace where um, Elizabeth was born, a timber palace called Kolomenskoye outside Moscow, is actually surrounded by mystery and rumors of ghosts and time travel. And when I looked closer into the mystical world of the Russians, it's fascinating to see that no spirit is ever good. They're all ill-willing. And I found that fascinating. What does that tell you about a people's imaginary and about their relationship with their very hostile and harsh climate and nature? So I introduced this element of literary surrealism into the Tsarina's daughter, and I absolutely love it. Because I found it's always difficult when you, because this is not a period of history I know hugely well. So I know a bit of, sort of Peter the Great, and then I think like most people in my writing, gets a bit dodgy up until about, well, Catherine the Great. It was this great big hole. And so I found myself, you know, occasionally like, oh, this character, this, this person can't be real. So I quickly Wikipedia it and was like, oh, this person does that. Oh, let's try and not avoid any spoilers. So so all the characters in it are, are, are real people. You haven't in- invented any, well, apart from maybe the odd sort of very minor character. All the major characters are, are, are all real. All the characters are real people and fantastic. It was a time of fantastic meritocracy. If you look back on Tsarina, you see that it was almost a prerogative for Peter the Great that his friends had to be of low birth and even his wife then. And so people like Menshikov or Osterman, the main baddies, they are 
really described as they were. If I did anything, I blended characters just because they were getting too many. And my agent and editor said, look, first of all, they told me everybody has just one name, please, in this book. So I went very easy on the Russian patronyms, just putting them in where I really felt it belonged to place and anchor the story in its geographical roots so that people don't get too confused that every person has got two or three names, the pet name added to that. But I blended characters because it just got too many. For instance, Elizabeth's first lover, she was a very sensuous character. She had inherited her father's libido and one foreign observer wrote she doesn't have an ounce of nun's flesh on her body and all the characters are in her morals and not in her looks. So I blended two of her lovers because it just got too much and he suffers a horrific fate. And this fate is true because at some point her, she was so derided and so destitute and so isolated, um, that even loving her became a mortal crime that, that warranted capital punishment. And another character that I blended is of two Russian advisors, one of whom suffered the horrific fate of spending 10 years of his life dressed up as a bird sitting in a man-high cage, pretending to be a chicken the whole day long. And if not, the Tsarina would have his neck wrung. But this was not my, and the Tsarina is obviously not my Empress Elizabeth, but um, her cousin without wanting to give any spoilers. Yeah, I, again, I was astonished that what, that wasn't something you made up. And I have to thank you for the name decisioning, because I remember when I first read, or tried to, because I never finished it, Tolstoy, and all those characters in War and Peace and Anna Karenina all have like two or three names all the time. And it's just horribly confusing to try and keep all those pieces. So did anything um, surprise you uh, when you're doing your research? Any little nuggets that, that you weren't expecting? I think what's, what touched me the most and what I find most surprising is the young Emperor Peter II, who was a grandson of Peter the Great and who was so despised by his grandfather that he actually grew up completely unloved, completely ignored in some freezing rooms in the Winter Palace, almost as if wanting to let him die. And this character is the one that made me the saddest, creating him, writing about him, how sort of this, how this little creature grew up without any love just for the sin of being his father's son. And that actually Elizabeth truly was his only friend and that he adored her. And she too cannot give him what he desires in the very end. So for me, Peter, Petrushka, Petrushka is for me the ultimate tragic character in this book. And I found him deeply touching all this quest for love um, that goes unanswered until the end of his very young life. It seems to be a bit of a theme of Russian history of of czars hating their their heirs. I, I'm thinking. I mean, there's this example. I know Catherine the Great had issues with hers. Alexander the Third never trained up Nicholas the Second at all. And skip, apologies, listeners, if you hear some car alarm is going off. Now. Um, but yeah, like uh, Nicholas, a lot of people put Nicholas the Second's terrible rulership that obviously led to the Russian Revolution down to the fact that his father never trained him in rulership and so so many in so many countries it's considered to be the absolute duty of the monarch to ensure the succession and to make sure that your heir is ready uh in russia they seem to almost fear their heirs 
or or even hate them, you see them as such threats uh, to their own rulership. And you can sort of see that in this book as well. Yes, that's that is that is a very interesting statement. And it's of course you can ask yourself how can you ever be ready to actually such a task? Because what being a Tsar meant was really being this absolutely omnipotent person that we can't even imagine the power of that office anymore. The wealth, the influence that Russia was basically your private treasure chest and that life and death of hundreds of millions of people just hung on your fingertips. And how do you ever give that sense of responsibility, that knowledge, that daring. It's like a constant dancing on on eggshells. And it's very interesting to see that the last Tsar who was probably considered being, you know, most apt, perhaps was Peter the Great the most apt, he grew up actually very freely and very far away from the Kremlin and without a father and only people who uh, tutors. So it is such a difficult difficult trade-off and even if you look at nowadays monarchs um, you look at prince charles you hear about (laughs) his thwarted relationship with prince philip it is just something very very hard to prepare for but you're right i think love and security is probably the least thing you can give any child and especially somebody who's an heir to a throne so obviously we've spoken already that your last book zarina was about a Catherine the first and and she is she sort of shows up in the first sort of section of this book towards the end of her life and what I found quite interesting is obviously the last book is the whole story of her life and this book comes right at the end and seen through different person's eyes and I found that she came across a little bit differently possibly even a little less sympathetically perhaps because she, did you find it a bit tricky sort of parking your first person narrative of this character and I guess of the, um, that person's views of other characters like Menshikov, and then starting again almost with her daughter. Yes, definitely. And of course, one has to see how lonely Elizabeth and Anushka were as children. Um, so Anushka is her elder sister who survived to the age of 19 or 20. And that her, their parents, Peter the Great and Catherine I, were just always, always away. And the first years of their life, they grew up like peasants' girls out in Kolomenskoye. You know, they ate very simple food, uh, sausages and stews and soups, and they ran around bare feet in the dust and rustling through leaves. Probably a wonderful childhood. Probably actually much happier than if they had been corseted and stuffed in a palace. And later they were parked with Peter the Great's sister-in-law who looked after them. So there is a moment at the deathbed where Elizabeth says, despite... You know, my mother always having been away from me, I never felt a a lack of love. But of course, there must have been this natural distance and equally perhaps a sense of an overbearing presence. I mean, can you imagine having parents like Peter the Great and Catherine the First who rose from serf to empress? I mean, what sort of family is that? And that's why I actually have one scene where they are just a family and they are in the kitchen in Peterhof. And this is actually true that they love their privacy in this for the times, very, very modern kitchen that had running water in the 1700s. And they loved, you know, just buttering their, their sourly breads and, um, and just eating simple food and, and, and being together. So yes, the caffeine in this book is different because she is a mother who is quite remote and who is forever busy actually trying to give Russia an heir, which she fails. And once she's 
empress herself, actually see herself is so exhausted from her life that she leaves all influence to somebody else who grows to be Elizabeth's biggest enemy. So we've sort of spoken a lot about uh, Elizabeth and, and she's in many ways a, a very, as much as any person can rule sympathetically, uh, any, especially in a country, she probably is the most sympathetic Russian em- and someone, again, that no one's heard of and I have to include myself in that. So I think I asked you a similar question about this about Catherine last time, but why do you think she and her mother have been forgotten while, say, Catherine the Great is this sort of very well-known figure? That's an interesting question. I mean, Catherine the Great, of course, was ruling and veering towards enlightenment. You know, enlightenment had, uh, was happening when, when she, uh, took over the reins of power. Whilst when Catherine the First and Elizabeth were ruling, these were still the dark times. I equally think that the aftermath of Peter the Great's death left such a vacuum of power and opened the curtain for such a hugely complex scenery. You know, the Russian throne in those days was basically a revolving door. In five years' time, the Russian throne was orphaned three times. So just actually for a novelist to keep on top of all these developments and all these characters, I felt like a puppeteer having 10,000 strings and just hoping that my reader will be able to follow. Apparently they do, if I if I can believe the first reviewers, Elizabeth was a very human empress. For instance, she was the first ruler in the world ever to abolish the death penalty, at least the full-on death penalty. Of course, you can always flog somebody or torture somebody until he dies. But she, at the moment of her palace coup, when she took over the reins of power, and Russia can only have one ruler. That is sort of the lesson we learn from that book. Um, she swore that she would never spill a drop of Russian blood. And even the man who had been her utmost enemy was in the end only subjected to the humiliation and the horror of a mock execution and uh, was banished instead. So she kept her word. Of course, her rule as such did not leave as many traces probably as Catherine the Great's rule. Did. But she's an immensely human, larger than life character, and that's what I love about her. I guess also it's part of a period of history that is maybe less well studied. Because obviously Catherine the Great, as you say, is in the Enlightenment and sort of her um, in charge as, as Tsar just before the French Revolution, so it's more studied, I suppose. And there is sort of weird, you get these periods in European history that almost like mini dark ages, sort of skipping, you know, from between the Renaissance and, and the Enlightenment is this weird, fascinating period, huge amounts of change. You've got the Thirty Years' War, you've got the Great Northern War, uh, and yet people just... Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I've written the question, there's a constant theme in this book of female rivalry. Frankly, there's a constant theme of just rivalry in general. But you do see, particularly in, 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 in early and middle parts of the book, women being turned on each other by men, essentially, and I'm thinking particularly with uh, Elizabeth and her sister, who grew up as these incredibly close people, and due to politicking of people around them, sort of turned on each other. Do you think there's a lesson in here for how sort of women in power and women in, in influence um, conduct themselves and how society treats them? 
That's a very interesting question because, of course, the women at the time of Elizabeth, such as her sister and her cousins, who were actually the first Russian princesses to be married off because before them, uh, Tsar's daughter and a Tsar's sister were condemned to an almost monastic life who did not marry, who had no education. And this was a heritage of the Cossack occupation that lasted for centuries. So once they stopped and even when they got married, of course, they're still utterly dependent on men and what men thought of them and of the chances they received. The chances was basically making a good match. Failing that, you were sent to a monastery or you were banished to a convent. So this is what Elizabeth fears every day because she actually refuses to do either watching the very unhappy matches that her sister and her her cousins make. And she, of course, fears more than anything else to be sent to a convent and not live with the love of her life anymore. Um, yes, I do think that there are lessons to to be learned here because already on the schoolyard, on the playground at school, Somehow boys learn how to manipulate women, girls. I think that probably an all-girls school, can it be more peaceful? I don't know. I've never been to an all-girls school. I have to ask friends. But definitely in the workplace, if women learn to show more solidarity and don't think, oh, that silly cow has got better legs than me or her hair is fuller or her skin is nicer or she's 20 years younger, there's always somebody who's 20 years younger than you. Let's face it. But actually just take each other for face value and mentor each other and, and help each other and protect each other too against um, male attempts of manipulation. Uh, I think we would all be in for a much happier, more equal world. It's a very good question you've asked. Obviously, because of her name, Elizabeth, the first thing you think about is is Queen Elizabeth, from a, at least from an English perspective. And like there are a few similarities between them, the most sort of notable being the fact that Elizabeth is extremely reticent to marry in the same way that the Queen Elizabeth was. She sees it through a series of incredibly unhappy marriage in her family. Do you think, because I know that the, one of the main things when discussing Queen Elizabeth I of England is, is discussing whether the fact that she didn't marry eventually caused a lot of instability. Do you think it is possible for a woman in this period of so 15th, 16th, 17th century to be powerful if they have a husband. Is it only possible for them to be powerful if they have a husband? Yes, I believe so. It was probably very rare. I know there were a couple of merchants' widows in that olden day Russia who took over business of their husbands who had died, but they always needed special licenses. They always were well related. There were always attempts to take their business away. So yes, a woman without a man was in a very, very fragile place. But I love the anal analogy that you draw to Elizabeth I of England, because I actually have written a feature for, which is going to be published for the book called The Other Elizabeth, because there's just more than some similarities, if you think about it. They're both born as the second quite unimportant daughter into a relatively young royal dynasty. Their mothers are derided internationally because the real queen is still alive. The father struggle for a male heir, these overbearing father figures. I mean, can you imagine bedtime with Henry VIII and, and Peter the Great? Um, they're both supposed to make a French match. That doesn't happen. They remain unmarried. They have to survive the latent terrorism under the rule of a very spiteful, jealous, elder, much less popular female monarch. Um, they reign childlessly in the end, leave their throne to a little-loved nephew and die in a river palace. 
and they're both called Elizabeth. So I find the similarities between these two women are fascinating. I think where the dividing line is, is actually, I shouldn't say this, is in their looks. Hilary Mantel famously describes Elizabeth as, um, Elizabeth Tudor as Princess Ferret Face, very unkindly. And whilst, uh, as I say, Elizabeth Petrovna was hailed as the world's foremost beauty, did her beauty bring her much luck? I think in the end of the day, it was again her cunning and actually her very modern ability of being emotionally intelligent because Elizabeth fostered everything in her that was Russian. So in a way, she was the first people's princess in a moment where Russia seems to be submerged by the westernization that her father kicked off and the old Russia almost dies. She rediscovers everything that is Russian and it's the Russian's love that carries her to power. So it brings me on nicely to the thing I was going to ask because a huge tension in the book in the background, and much in the background, is this tension between the old and the new, between the modern and the traditional. Um, again, if we talk going back to the Tudors, you know, that's, a, uh, you know, they ruling, seeing a country move from sort of the medieval to the core. But in Russia, that's much stronger because you have this huge figure of Peter the Great who sort of drags his into the 17th, 18th century. Um, and when he dies, and, and in the period this book covers, you see these people, these old-fashioned people like the Dolgorukis who are trying to go back to an old supposed golden age of Russian past and those who are trying to drag them towards a new golden age or maintain the sort of... And this is something I think that happens so much, this sort of yearning for a sort of a past that never really happened and then some people just constantly looking to the future without really focusing on what's good now. Do you think there is a... a a similarity between Russia in the period this book covers and the modern world? There's definitely a similarity of Russia then and Russia today. Again, if you, for us today, Russia is again, as Churchill put it, what does he say? Russia is a riddle wrapped inside an enigma and part of a mystery. And we even have a Tsar again in Russia, if you think about it. I mean, Vladimir Putin is really like a Tsar in Russia and the Russians love this idea of a strong leader. It's the same as China. They just, mentally, these countries just need that one strong man. I don't think anything else could ever work out for them. And even, and for that, they gladly accepted then Lenin or Stalin. They could have never swapped the Tsar for a regime of multiple powerful persons, people. I think they needed this one strong man. So definitely, if you want to understand more about the Russian psyche and equally this sort of, this deep-rooted Slavic character of being able to, you know, slumber, bear so much. There's a very interesting character in the book, Fyodor Prokopovich, who was Peter the Great's uh, most treasured advisor and who in the end is a bit like an Obi-Wan Kenobi for Elizabeth, you know, the last man standing of her past and who always gives her good advice and actually who secretly bankrolls her to power because she is his only hope to maintain the power of all that is Russian. And he has this host of letters in his hands that is written by the foreign observers. And in there, and these are true letters. I quote from true letters. It says, you know, if the Russian bear ever awakes, you know, beware, beware their own country. And 
nothing will happen in the lifetime of this emperor, but we can't say what's going to happen um, in the rule of the next. So people were sensing that there was something brewing and there would be something happening. Is it the same today again? The interesting thing is that the Russians admire Vladimir Putin. Of course, there are political opponents who are very, very brave people, I have to say, standing up for their principles and their beliefs. But uh, in itself, I think they they condone Putin. The Russia of today is not that different of the Russia back then. It will help you understand the country if you read these books. And also, we talk about the need for a strong leader. Um, but also another big tension in the book is this reticence of, a, of female. You know, Elizabeth um, is many ways more qualified, more it's obviously closer to the previous regime than a lot of the people that end up ruling instead of her. Um, Russia had obviously had Catherine before that never had a, a female ruler. And other kingdoms, like we talked about England, um, had had female rulers. Why do you think Russia was so reticent at this time to seize a, a woman rule? It was still an absolute patriarchy. And of course, a very ruthless, brutal, wild, male-dominated world where women had their place. And that place was to, you know, bear children and uh, carry on the family bloodline. So having a woman who wanted to do more on top of that and um, Elizabeth actually very carefully fostered her public image by wearing a lot of men's clothes because also she was quite vain and she thought that wearing these breeches showed off her curvy hips and her long slim legs. <laughs> so that was another reason why she liked wearing um, men's hunting clothes and equally seized power dressed in the uniform of the imperial regiment. So she was very careful to blend these two images, you know, her as the only surviving child, the true heir of Peter the Great. That equally are true words when she walks into the barracks and she asks the soldiers, do you know who I am? This is what happened. And the soldiers shouting back at her, yes, we know you are the Tsar's daughter. And she answering more so, I'm the Tsarina's daughter. This is a true dialogue. So she was very careful at blending the imaginary with the reality and surpassing her own femininity in a way. I think, yeah, it's it's I think a constant theme of of um, women rulers of, of this time, or in just any female sort of powerful person, that you have to blend what is I don't say what is good about being a woman, but what the period saw as being good about being a woman, about bringing people together, about being this sort of maternal figure, but also about being a king. So many of the women rulers at this time, we call them queens in English, but queen for most of history, wife of the king. So you, they tend to think, you know, Queen Elizabeth famously, you know, called herself a prince a lot of the time. Uh, and I'm sure I'm not sure what Elizabeth referred to herself as, whether she referred to herself as Zarina or whether she referred to herself as Tsar. I wouldn't be surprised she did a bit of both. <laughs> Probably. I think by then I mo mostly used Tsar and Serena in the book, but that's more, again, to anchor it well and truly in Russia because, of course, Peter the Great had, accept had as first Russian Tsar adopted the Western title of emperor. 
And even if we now say today, oh, yes, the last Tsars, actually in their own minds, by then they are emperor and empress. So I suppose that Elizabeth publicly, at least in all her correspondence, is referred to as the empress to make that link towards the West. Um, but of course, Serena is just so much more a title that anchors her where she belongs. <laughs> So you've already mentioned that uh, this is going to be this. This is the second book of four. When can we next expect the the third book? And what's the third book going to be on? I'm very busy writing at the moment. It is going to be a prequel to Tsarina. So I'm not quite following the historic timeline because I've chanced upon a fantastic conflict between two incredible women in the early house of Romanov this time. Um, so I'm doing it a little bit like Star Wars that all of a sudden the first book becomes the second book and <laughs> the new hope is out there. And um, then I'm going to end this series with a fourth book, which is already in plan. I do have material for all in all seven books, but this Serena series, so this covering this unique century of um, feminine rule in Russia is going to be these four books. And um, I don't know yet when it's going to be out because I'm still writing on it, but it's going very well. Thank you. Oh, well, I know these things take time, but I also know that editors refer it if you just put your head down and got it out as quickly as possible. <laughs> so best of luck with that. And thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And I'm sure when the third book comes out, we'll have you on again. Thank you so much, James. Have a great day. Bye-bye. In case it didn't come across in our chat, I really enjoyed this book. If you read Zarina, this one is a lot less X-rated than its predecessor, much more concerned with palace intrigue than sex and violence. Though it's fair to say there's quite a bit of that as well, just to be sure. The book is published by Bloomsbury Publishing in the UK and the rest of the world, outside of North America, and came out on the 8th of July. You can order it from your local bookstore, or from the link below, from which I get a little bit of a kickback. If you live in the US and Canada, it's published by St Martin's, and sadly won't be out until March of next year. However... As with The Wolf Den, you can order it from the UK with my affiliate link and you will still get it. And I believe your shipping will even still be free. You can find a link in the show notes below. Thank you, everybody, and I will see you soon. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.